0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Mondilla.
1: Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Friber. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am in Montilla, home, I discovered today, of an extremely fine, sweet wine. Um, I'm actually leaning on a wine barrel. It looks like American oak, if you're listening, Brian Nygaard. Um, and by sheer luck, um, by fortunate happenstance, the press room today is, because I'm standing outside it, um, it's also in a winery, the Bodega Alvear, uh, founded in 1729, uh, two years before Alejandro Valverde turned professional. Uh, not quite, not quite. He hasn't, hasn't quite been going for that long. Um, incidentally, I learned today, or I was reading some something in preparation for today's episode, and I was reading about the 2006 Vuelta a España, and he said in 2006 he thought he had seven more Vuelters in him. And here we are in 2022. Um, joining me today from Villefranche-sur-Mer, where the Rolling Stones recorded Exile on Main Street in 1972 and where the cycling podcast will now record half of our Stage 13 episode of the Vuelta a España. He is the current AG2R Citroën professional and veteran of four of Vuelta a España, also Tour de Swiss stage winner, 2017 US National Road Race champion. He's Motown's answer to Fausto copy a rider so charismatic. Even the microphones want his autograph. It's lucky Larry Warbass. How are you, Larry? Hey Daniel. Yeah, doing well. Uh, glad to be here again for another stage. It's a good job this world is only 21 stages. Imagine how florid the introductions would become if it, if it was any longer. I like the introductions. They make me feel <laughs> good about myself. You know? <laughs> how are you feeling about yourself, Larry? Um, now well, a couple of weeks. Better, weeks into, yeah, into your A few weeks into your comeback now. How's the training going?
2: Yeah, it's going pretty well. So, you know, I mean, I was back in the US, so now this week I've sort of been just trying to get over jet lag. I have a friend visiting, so, you know, trying to get some training in, but I'm not, you know, going overboard yet. So um, I have another scan next week to see if I can come back to racing, uh, hopefully soon. And then, yeah, I'm just trying to sort of get in as much training as I can without, like,
1: killing myself. So, Are you still feeling okay about watching La Vuelta? not experiencing too yeah. many pangs Um we're in a beautiful part of spain today i was gonna say i mean it's not i guess we'll talk about this more later but i think even just seeing
2: all the guys testing positive i'm like well maybe if i was at the welt i wouldn't have lasted there that long anyway so
1: you know just trying to make myself feel not so bad uh <laughs> while i'm watching it but yeah Uh, Well, I mentioned it it is a beautiful part of Spain. We're still in Andalucía. Um, This morning I was in Ronda, Larry, um, home of a very famous bull ring. You've been here in La Vuelta, in fact, um, home to a very famous bull ring, bullfighting ring, uh, um, the Plaza de Toros there. I was reading this morning, Larry, about a a famous bullfighter in the 18th century there who did, did his best or worst Um, depending on whether you're an animal rights activist or not. Best or worst work in the bull fighting ring in uh, Ronda, Pedro Romero, very famous, and he he killed 6,000 bulls in his lifetime or in his career, the last of which were killed when he was over 80 years old in Madrid. So, um, well, maybe, who knows, maybe this is not Alejandro Valverde's last Vuelta a España. Um, maybe not. Larry, are you ready? Are you feeling primed and motivated for this evening's?
0: El resumen del día a contra de The stage summary time trial. And Larry... Your
1: super snood is on, you're ready to go, you're rolling down the ramp, and I am starting the stopwatch right now.
2: Okay, so today was stage 13 from Ronda to Montilla. Uh, It was 168.4 kilometers, and yeah, we ended up seeing a sprint finish. But most of the day, there was a three-rider breakaway. Um, three guys, Johan Bo, Ander Okamika, and Julius Vandenberg. Uh, they were 155 kilometers in the front. They got brought back by the Peloton, who were, yeah, they were riding for uh, Mads Peterson, Covidis was riding also. Luckily for Trek, Mads Peterson won the stage ahead of Cocard and Pascal Ackermann. Ackermann did a nice attack in the finale, but uh, Mads was just too strong, so he en- ended up having the perfect lead up by Ackerman uh, to pretty handily take the win on the uphill sprint finish. Remco keeps his red jersey uh, with his 2.41 gap over Primoz Roglic. Maas, Moss, Rick Moss is still in third at 3.03. Mads Peterson has an enormous lead in the green jersey. Then Jay Vines in the KOM, Remco's in white, and UAE is still the best team. Oh, and then if we're gonna talk about today also, Juan Ayuso was positive for COVID, but still in the race with a low viral load. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing that I'm sure we'll talk more about. That
1: was a piece of news, that was a piece of news delivered with a very straight face and we will talk <laughs> about that actually in greater in greater depth later on. But before we do that, in fact, let's let's just hear a little bit from his from Juan Ayuso's team manager, director sportif, uh, Machin Fernandez this morning. Um, he talked about well what happens now with uh, Juan Ayuso. Here is Machin
3: no, no. It's the situation. Is the isolate the rider traveling only one car with the only one seniors on and isolate for the moment of the of the negative. But at that moment, is the do problem. It's, it's a green light for for a start. But it's isolated for the testing negative.
1: So, Larry, that was matching this morning of UAE saying that well now it's going to be a very lonely. Um, vuelta for Juan Ayuso over the next few days because he's going to be in a car on his own he's going to have a, his soigneur is going to be isolated or oh, that was sort of what Machin indicated, but there's a lot of controversy about this there have been tweets today, we're going to we're going to touch on this, um, there are tweets from other riders today who are pretty unhappy that he's been able to carry on, there was a rider this morning I won't name him, there was a rider in the mix zone this morning who um, could be clearly seen inching away from Juan Ayuso when Ayuso came into the mix zone um, and it's it's become a bit of a hornet's nest that whole topic but as you mentioned the stage win went as predicted I suppose he was the big favorite to Mads Pedersen of Trek Segafredo he was expertly or well, led out by his team but they'd also done a good job of controlling the break that you mentioned um, let's hear now from Alex Kirsch the Luxembourg rider who has been Mads Pedersen's lead out man throughout this Vuelta a España He's, his is the first voice you'll hear and then from Johan Bau who was in that break that sort of suicide break you could call it today for um, the Euskadi team and he's also a former pro cycling Vuelta España audio diarist so let's hear from that pair now. It's been
4: coming for a couple of days, we tried a lot already and pulled a lot so this is very satisfying. It's not so easy, we, we are with a group of climbers so Sprint wise we are a bit limited on, on what we can do and uh, we also lost one, one rider pretty early to sickness, which was very important for us in the sprint. So uh, actually today was just about I tried to bring him in, in a good position for for the last climb and then um, he had the legs to do the rest.
1: He's made you guys work hard in this Vuelta a España, but how much of a well how satisfying has it been from for you personally to do this job for Mads in such a successful race?
4: Uh, I think I, I, I was with him uh, in every, except the tour, I was in every race he he won uh, this year, so yeah, it's great to be part of it and, and he really deserves this. Um, well, The team deserves it for the, for the effort, but the motivation he brings to, to every race is just uh, incredible and, and so he, he definitely deserves this win also.
5: Uh, yeah, at the beginning we, we just went three in the break, uh, I, 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 I would prefer to, to go like 5-6 like last year, we went in, in, in both with, with good riders and we, we reached the finish line. Uh, but today, the, the, the people are, are, I think, are reserving for, for tomorrow and for, for Sunday. Uh, but yes, we, we went well. We, we passed every, every time as we expected. And, and until 10 to, to the finish line, we, we got caught. But happy no? because uh, the team needs this this time on TV and, and also uh, we have to, to reserve other people for tomorrow and Sunday stages and yeah, the, the team is happy and, and we will be uh, strong to, to finish the, the Vuelta this year. Here,
1: um, you've had a lot of kilometres in the breakaway, is that an objective for you personally to have more kilometres
5: than anyone else in the Vuelta? Well, yeah... From now to the end, it would be a, a good achievement for me, no, a good prize. Uh, last year, I went in three in three breaks, then I, I crashed uh, in, the, in stage 17. I, I could not uh, go in anymore. I just went in the group pedals every day. Uh, but this year will be a nice, a nice prize, no, and also in the next days try and, and, and look for a new break and and, and also look for a, for a stage win. Are you trying to get yourself noticed by a World Tour team to maybe move up a level? Yeah, it would be good. Now I'm 25 this year. Uh, this is my third year in the team. Uh, I have one more year uh, signed, but uh, yeah, it would be great to be in a, in a, in a top-level team. And, and yeah, I think I, I could do a, a nice job, but first you have to achieve some, some goals and, and hear your name in every race. And, and that's why we are also always fighting for for it. Could it happen next year, maybe? 2023? It will be good, no? We will see. Next year, I have also one more year contract, but it would be nice to hear from other teams, maybe, along the year. The cycling podcast at the 2022
0: Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success.
6: Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Super Sapiens were founded by Phil Sutherland, a Type 1 diabetic, and Phil also founded Team Type 1, which is now the Novo Nordisk team, and all of the riders on that team are Type 1 diabetics, including Sam Brand from the Isle of Man. And we've been hearing from Sam over recent episodes, and here is Sam talking about some of the data he takes on board to ensure he gets his fueling strategy right.
2: Just trying to make sure that, first and foremost, my diabetes management is the most important thing. Obviously, you need to fuel in a stage race. That's where it's probably the most critical. I have to, obviously, put more expenditure. Obviously, in a breakaway day, I've taken out more energy. So I need to make sure I replenish that. And you can use the sensor to see where your sugars are at, uh, where that's at. But also, you need to make sure that you need to cover what you've put out. So, you know, go to training peaks, check my expenditure, and then kind of eat based on on that as well so it's not all just sensor data but it's it, it's a big part of it so you see where you've been at where you need to refuel and you know it's all all using what you have available in terms of data to be able to make a
0: a, a decision that is best for you
6: to find out more about super sapiens go to supersapiens.com
0: el diario roglich
4: First first of all, I'm sure you heard that uh, Ayuso is tested positive, but he is staying
7: in the race. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh,
8: part of it. Huh? I mean, we are living with it, uh, with uh, with the Covid now in these times. And uh, yeah, uh, just uh, try to yeah,
3: stay healthy.
4: Safe uh, racing next to him?
8: <laughs>
3: I have no option. Huh? So yes, I have to do my job. I have to do
8: the
9: best I can.
1: So, Larry, you know what I mean, huh? Uh, that was that was Primoz, that was the man himself, that was Primoz Roglic this morning, speaking about, well, that issue we mentioned before, the short commercial interlude, Juan Ayuso continuing in the Vuelta a España, despite testing positive for COVID his team are are unusual maybe unique in the Vuelta España in that they have the capacity the ability a machine um, or I don't know how you do PCR tests but they can do their own PCR tests and this is perhaps this perhaps explains Um, why they were able to establish that the the viral load was small. That's what they've been saying. And this was approved also by the UCI and the, the race itself. Hence Juan Ayuso staying in the race. However, I mentioned that Not everyone is thrilled. A couple of riders who aren't at the race certainly are not thrilled. Um, Jose Herrada of Cofidis has been tweeting. um, He's called it a circus that this is allowed to happen. Uh, Angel Madrazo, who of course should have been riding the Vuelta a España for Burgos Biache, he said that what happened today was the kind of thing that took away your will to ride the bike. um, Because I don't think he was experiencing symptoms either and there have been a few and Pavel Sivakov was a was another one a couple of days ago who had to pull out in the top 10 although he was asymptomatic haven't checked up on him or with him in the last day or so to see if he has developed any symptoms and but Larry what do you make of it yeah you know
2: I think it's really uh it's a tough one to to say because I mean yeah maybe in all those other cases they didn't check the viral load and you know so yeah, it's it's really hard to know. But I I will say I know that like UAE probably has one of the most um you know, I, I would say they have like a very high level medical team, you know,
1: like I know Jeroen Swart, he's uh maybe the head doctor there and you know, I think he's pretty He's actually he's actually now head of performance. He's actually changed roles
2: But anyway, I think they have, you know, quite a lot of experience and, you know, um, I think it's a really reputable medical team there. And I mean, I would guess that these doctors there wouldn't allow him to continue if it really was dangerous for the team or for his health. You know, like, I don't think they would risk their reputations like that because I do know that like, yeah, it's a bit of a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a battle sort of between, you know maybe like the directors and managers of the team who want to have a great performance and then the doctors who are looking out for these riders' health. So I I would imagine with, you know, the medical team that they have, they wouldn't risk their reputations and stuff if they really believe that it could be, you know, dangerous for for his health or dangerous for other riders. So that's my two cents, but I, I can understand why the other riders are upset. You know, for example... At the Tour de Suisse, I tested positive um, the night before the last day. So, you know, we were going to do PCR tests the, um, the last day of the race. And uh, the, the night before, I had had some symptoms. And so the director said, you know, that maybe it was a good idea that I, you know, do a test. And said, so, yeah, you know, it's, it probably couldn't hurt. So I did, a, did a, an antigen test and I was positive and so they said okay you know you you can't start uh the next stage uh because it's dangerous for your health (laughs) and I was like okay well it's a time trial and like you know like fine if I can't start but like I think dangerous for my health uh more dangerous for my health was racing with it in the 40 degree heat for 200 kilometers up these mountains the last days you know like I don't think soft pedaling a time trial will be dangerous for my health in that regard but um, you know, cause I was like, oh, I could just isolate and whatever. Anyway, uh, they weren't for it. And yeah, so I stopped the race. Luckily no one else on the team was positive yet. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I believe that might possibly be how, uh, Bob jungles ended up, you know, having the same sort of circumstances as I used so at the tour because he was my roommate at Swiss, but, but, you know, I think, uh, as we saw there, um, In the end, I think he was fine, Bob, um, at the tour, so maybe we'll see a bit of the same thing with Ayuso. Clearly, it doesn't appear to have been affecting his performance, so uh, maybe it really wasn't that bad, and maybe in the end, uh, yeah, it won't affect his health, and he may not be contagious for anyone else. But yeah, it's hard to say, you know? It's like, we don't know that much about this still. Um, And yeah, I can see why other guys are upset.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the longitudinal scientific evidence, scientific studies, well, they're lacking. Um, Not least because, you know, COVID only originated in 2019, at the end of 2019, so there haven't been long-term studies. Um, Also, you would like to think that the status of the rider and his position in a race and what is to gain for the team are not factors. However... In this case, the fact that he's riding high in the yeah, top five of the Vuelta yeah. Hispania and also, you know, there was an, an analogous case with the same team in the Tour de France. Rafael Mica tested positive and carried on. And the team true. chose to keep him in the race. Um, when Tadej Pogacar desperately, desperately needed his help. And I, I can see how that would sort of stick in the craw and upset some of the riders who who have maybe, not not that the team would have told them this explicitly, but they've made maybe judged other riders to be more expendable in other circumstances. I'm not saying, Larry, that that's the case with you, because you're essential in every race that yeah. you do. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, no, I mean, you're 100% right there, you know. I, and I guess I, I forgot, I kind of left that part out, but that, like... Yeah, I think it really does re- depend on who the rider is, and uh, I guess more so their position in the race, because like, it is important for the team, uh, and so I guess that can definitely be a conflict of interest, but you know, I think if the rider and the team are both on board, and the medical team approves it, then you have to say it's okay, but yeah, it's that's a difficult one, and uh, yeah, it's probably true if Ayuso was in 87th place, he'd be out of the race, so... Yeah, what do you do there, you know? Um, but maybe it's just because they'd say we wouldn't take any risk for that.
1: I mean, and this this situation is even thornier at the moment because, well, there's a lot of talk of relegation from the World Tour and there, there are teams that are in pretty dire straits on that score. Yeah. And there may be a temptation to keep riders in the race when perhaps they, they have tested positive for that reason because they need to gain points. I mean, Tao Gagan Hart on Twitter a couple of days ago, he highlighted um, how. Well, I think it, 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 he made it pretty clear that he, he thought it was unfair to be holding. Well, the, to have introduced this new system to coincide with the three seasons. Don't forget, it's three. It's twenty twenty, twenty one, twenty two. Have all which have all been badly affected by COVID and those are the three seasons um, which dictate whether a team will survive or not in the world tour so I I don't know I mean I thought it was good the other day when Luke Durbridge he was very fair to the UCI and he acknowledged he said something that we don't say enough that is it's a difficult situation and we no one has a perfect solution Um, but I can also see how there will be multiple aggrieved parties um, whichever decisions are taken it's
2: funny though because you know I actually I have a friend staying with me right now and uh, he's not a cyclist but um, he's been following pretty closely and he had I thought like quite an interesting opinion because I said you know I I don't know I think it's a bit of a shame if you know we're always struggling for sponsors in cycling and if we just kind of like lose you know a couple teams from the world tour or potentially uh, you know potentially if some teams don't get world tour, they could lose their license. Or, you know, I mean, they could lose their sponsors. And I said, you know, it would be a shame to lose these teams. Um, And I was like, especially, you know, for example, a team like Movistar, who's been around for like 40 years. And he's like, you know, maybe for like long-term gain, there needs to be short-term casualties, you know? And like, yeah, maybe it's sad to lose a team like this or that or whatever. Uh, But in the end, like maybe it shows that like teams need to modernize they need to focus on you know certain things and for example jumbo you know i don't know what five years ago they were probably one of the or maybe a little maybe yeah five six years ago or something they were probably one of the last teams in the ranking you know and then they had this sort of like yeah uh this moment where they realized like we better change something or else and uh yeah they just kind of like went back to the basics and then started you know built their whole current new philosophy and now they're, you know, best in the world so it might be difficult but maybe it's what it's going to take for uh, some teams to modernise and maybe that pressure of potentially falling out every year um, yeah, could sort of just push the sport forward in the end
1: Yeah, I think the sort of cautionary tales on that score may come from, well for example Italy where they, they did all lose all of their teams effectively and the, the, the Italian cycling scene um, has been pretty much raised to the to the ground. Yeah, um, it's very difficult for and uh, but that that's also to do with the Italian economy. There aren't necessarily um, companies with the sort of disposable marketing budgets that there are in other countries. So it's a complex issue. Um, but I can certainly see where your friend is coming from. Yeah, um, I mean I thought it was interesting. Movistar, <laughs> yeah, they, they, some would argue that Movistar star don't deserve to you know have another ten or twenty years. I'm not necessarily of that view. Me but, either, so. um Larry a couple more a couple of other issues um, from particularly from today's well the finish first of all um, Mads Pedersen like to get your views on on him and also the fact that well we mentioned it with Brian Nygaard a few days ago he's not going to the world championships he's so cited family reasons for this Um, he said it would be seven weeks away from home if he went to australia so he's um he'll be going back to denmark after the Welter finishes in madrid skipping the worlds um yeah what do you what do you make of that and also just his i mean his season in general uh, he's had a well he's had three second places at the Welter. i actually i could have sworn i've been here the whole time and i could have sworn he'd won a stage before today you know it's funny today when i saw it i was
2: like Okay, oh, I was good to see you won a stage, but I was like, I thought he actually had won one earlier. But uh, yeah,
1: I was like, I better check this before we speak. I thought he'd won about three. Anyway, he hadn't. That was his first one. Um, so he's had he's had a great Vuelta. He won at the Tour. He won at Paris. He was eighth in Flanders, sixth in San Remo. So just talk to me a little bit about Mads Pedersen, his season, and that decision not to go to the Worlds. I mean, I I
2: think he's had an amazing season because he's flown from start to finish. Um, You know, I remember I was at uh, Bessege. And I remember on this first day, this uphill finish, you know, he just crushed everyone. And on the second day, there was like a kilometer long uphill. And, uh, yeah, he finished second there. So that was like super impressive. And that that race, yeah, he really, really impressed me. And then, yeah, he won Paris-Nice. Uh, he won two stages at Circuit de la Sarthe. He won a 1.2 in Denmark. He won a stage at Belgian, Belgium Tour, you know, won a stage at the Tour de France. So just the whole year, he's been super consistent and awesome. Um, so, you know, I think he's had an awesome season. And, and I actually think it's a bit of a shame that he's not going to the Worlds because I think he'd be a really big favorite to win. But from what I heard, I rode with one of his teammates yesterday. And uh he said he looked at the course, and he saw it's four thousand meters of climbing, and just said, "Okay, well, then it's not for me, um even though maybe like the circuit, the way it is you know, with such a long race, four thousand meters seems like a lot on paper, but if you break it down, it might not actually be that crazy um but yeah that's that's what I heard was just he thought okay it's it's just four thousand meters is too much for me."
1: It's something we talk about pretty much every year on the podcast, how even professional riders, professional coaches, national team coaches find it very difficult to read a world championship circuit partly because well they don't have the heritage of previous races having taken place on the same circuit. Um, circuit races themselves are kind of a, a law unto themselves and difficult to read. Um, and, and maybe it has something to do as well with the sort of amalgamation of riders from different teams, different trade teams. That also makes it difficult. Um, I mean, we've even heard riders in the week before the Worlds get it completely wrong before they've gone to, you know, whether it be Australia or Qatar or somewhere else, And they've said, look, it's going to finish in a sprint or it's going to finish in a small group and have been proven completely wrong. It's tough. I mean, I don't know, but it looks like it's going to be a small group. Larry, just one other thing I wanted to ask you about in relation to today's stage. Yuan Bao, we mentioned him, the Huescatel rider who um, was in the break today. He's been in a few breaks in this um, Vuelta Espana, and I sort of pressed him, as we heard earlier, about whether he was trying to impress uh, this world or whether he had designs on a contract in the world tour. I, I just wanted to ask you uh, how good a reference is repeatedly getting into breaks in a race like the Vuelta a España, it strikes me uh, that it's not something necessarily that World Tour team managers are that interested in or impressed by. So I
2: think that really depends on the breakaway. So, you know, for example, on a day, I'm trying to think of one of the days we saw a really strong break in the Vuelta, but, you know, if there's like, there are certain days that it's very hard to get in and there's a big battle and... You know, sometimes you still see the same guys up there. Um, so if he gets in as many breaks as Wout von Art did in the in the Tour de France, then yeah, for sure. Uh, but if it's if it's like, you know, like it's hard to say and I don't mean to sound like offensive by saying this, but it, in a token break like today, kind of, you know, like a day like today you know, looks like there's just no fight and they let three guys go. Getting in a break like that, it's not hard to do. And I don't think that really, you know, it's great for a sponsor like Euskital. You're getting like a lot of time on TV. You're out front. But it's not something that a lot of World Tour teams are going to look at and say, wow, like, you know, that guy's really good. But for example, I think a guy who did a really good job over the last years, and I would say it was his sort of breakaway prowess that, got him a contract in the World Tour was uh my former teammate, Simon Pelot, who was at IAM with me, and now he's at Trek. And, you know, he rode for Androni for the last couple of years, and he just really made breakaways his thing. And, you know, he started out by going sort of in these, like, token breakaways that weren't that special. But, like, as he started to do that, he kind of got a knack for it, and then he started to get in better and better breakaways. And then, you know, he started to come close to the win a couple times, or at least close to some good results, or getting some good results as a result of these breakaways. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that is what got him his World Tour contract. So it's definitely a possibility, but it depends on the break and it depends, you know, how it goes and it depends if you're getting results or not. So um, I think those results at the end are really what counts.
1: And Larry, just a very final thing on the sprint finish. Brian Cockar was second. Now this story was reported earlier today that he intends to leave the race tonight to go um, to race I think in France he's going to race again to try and pick up World Tour points and to help his team's efforts to to stave off relegation and he'll need approval from the UCI to do this I I i don't think he'll get it although i didn't think he would get it and then a colleague of mine pointed out to me that Cofidis is a sponsor of the vuelta a españa (laughs) and i don't know if that's gonna have anything to do with it but um yeah because it's it's actually the
2: i think it's the director of the race that you're at not the uci so you have to get approval from like the director of the vuelta like a permission i'm pretty sure
1: that's exactly right that's exactly right so he's probably got a pretty good chance
2: Yeah, I guess so. Um, And also, I mean, maybe, you know, it's probably something that they would have discussed with him before the race. I don't think they'd just go to the race and then hope that the guy would say yes. You know, I'm pretty sure before they went to the race, they'd ask him, you know. So, so yeah, I think... I'm sure he has a great chance.
4: Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast
1: team car, the back of the pack, please.
6: That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom. And if you've been listening to the cycling podcast over the past year, you'll know that I've been using Noom since last September. First of all, I wanted to lose some weight because I was not happy with the weight that I crept up to. Um, but I didn't like the idea of going on a conventional diet and being restricted in the types of food that I ate. I actually wanted to change my eating habits for the better and in a more sustainable long-term way. And Noom's messaging right from the start was about just embedding some healthy, sustainable eating habits Um, No food is totally off-limits, so I could have an occasional steak or glass of wine or beer when I fancied without knocking the diet for six and feeling that I'd failed Um, because it takes a much more holistic view of each day, each week, each month to just gradually nudge your eating habits into uh, a good direction. And that's how I found it worked for me. And particularly once I started to lose weight, uh, I started to feel better on and off the bike and that encouraged me to keep going and it also opened my eyes to how many calories are in certain types of food that i was eating that i perhaps didn't really want or need so i feel like all of the benefits for me have been positive now if you'd like to give noom a try sign up for your trial at noom.com cycle that's n-o-o-m dot com slash cycle lose the weight for good with noom but if you are thinking about losing a considerable amount of weight or you have any other kind of health considerations do seek advice from a medical professional before embarking on any kind of diet
0: el ritmo de la vuelta the rhythm of the vuelta
1: This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our Rioja adult moonwalk into the sonic archives of this race through the official anthems that have by turns made heads bop and ears explode since the tradition was introduced in 1978. Today, Larry, we're going back to 2006 when the official song was called En Que Estrella Estar? In Which Star Will It Be or Will He Be?
9: a veces le hablo bajito por pues si está, le busco por la calle camina. a veces le echo de menos si tú no estás, a veces tengo que hacerte tripas corazón, a veces tengo que huir porque no puedo más ¿Y ¿Qué estrella estará? estará cuídate, me pasaré la
1: It was performed by a band called Nene Da Conte, uh, fronted by the Madrid-born vocalist Mai Meneses. The single featured on the band's first album, He Perdido Los Zapatos, I Lost My Shoes, which was released five years after Meneses' breakthrough on the TV talent show Operación Triunfo. Now, I've chosen 2006 partly because yesterday we discussed the world that took place a few weeks after the Festina scandal. Today, I thought we'd look at the one that went ahead in, in the immediate aftermath of Operación Puerto. Not a talent show. Um, Of course, that doping investigation had cost the Tour de France three of its favourites for victory in Jan Ulrich, Alexander Vinokarov and Ivan Basso. And now a similar threat hung over the Vuelta. Alejandro Valverde had started the tour, though didn't finish. And he was also now being widely linked to Eufemiano Fuentes, the doctor at the centre of the scandal. At the same time, officials from both the Vuelta, organiser Unipublic and the Spanish Cycling Federation declared Valverde clean beyond any doubt statements with which the UCI and WADA would ultimately disagree although it would take them years to prove it. Vinokurov, meanwhile had to wait until the last minute just hours before the to start for the UCI to ratify the new name Astana and license of his Puerto Ravage team. The race began in Malaga on August 26th and you guessed it turned into a battle between Valverde and Vinokurov. The former took the gold jersey on stage nine to La Cobertoria and would keep it throughout the second week. Then though Vinokurov and his teammate and compatriot Andrei Kasheshkin detonated the race on the stage at the Sierra de la Pandera, with which this year's peloton has a date tomorrow. Kasheshkin took the stage, Vinokurov the jersey. Vinokurov would then solidify his advantage by winning the penultimate day TT. He was the 33rd foreign winner of the Vuelta. But by the end of the decade, Vinokurov, Valverde and Kasheshkin would all also have been sanctioned for doping. So that was 2006, Larry. Um, traditionally, I ask you after every one of these, did you see it? No, you didn't because you weren't following. You weren't following the Vuelta in 2006, were you? No, 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 not very closely. Any any dealings with Vino down there on the Riviera?
2: No, I've passed him a couple times. I actually see his sons a lot. So you know, both his sons are uh, like elite under twenty three riders, and uh, we used to like. There was this one guy who motor paced. Unfortunately, he passed away, but he motor paced most of the pros down here. And um, he also motor paced Vino's son. So sometimes, like, they'd motor pace uh, before me, and so then I'd meet them. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I don't usually see Vino with them. It's just uh, these two guys train together, and then I, I pass them a lot. They seem to train pretty hard, so...
1: Larry, talking of welters of your 2017, the race should have gone well, it did go to La Pandera. Um, Unfortunately, you did not. You pulled out on stage seven. Yeah, I crashed and
2: broke both my hands, so. Would have been difficult to make it up. Yes, yeah. it
1: would have been. It would have been tough. Would have been tough. Um, Larry, we're going to move swiftly on to well the main subject of our third part this evening, and well, it's about a rider, um, which who fascinates, intrigues a lot of fans. Um, his name is Mark Padun, Ukrainian rider, riding for EF Education First Easy Post. Came to prominence, soared to prominence really in 2021 with a double stage win at the Dauphiné. And then, um, sort of quite mysteriously, um, he he seemed to fall out with his team Bahrain last year and was picked up by EF. um, Signed by Jonathan Vautas, who said that his performances had messed up the head of sports science mathematical model. So prodigious were they? He started well this year for EF Education First. He won TT in the Gran Camino and was third overall. That was a race in Spain earlier in the year, but then two weeks later he had a DNF. Well, he had a DNF at the Tirreno, and then shortly after that DNF as well at the Tour of the Basque Country. And. Yes, he is a bit of a, a bit of an enigma, shall we say. His performances are very, very up and down. Um, there have been all sorts of theories that have been put forward for this. Jonathan Volders himself has talked about um, his difficulty with weight control and eating. Padun himself has talked about this, I think. And um, being a Ukrainian, he's also had personal issues to deal with over the last few years. Um, he hails from the region. Um, the Donbass region, which was the well, the epicentre of the first outbreak of the Ukrainian war in 2014. His parents no longer live in Ukraine, but he still has friends and family there. And, well, he was nowhere to be seen at the Tour de France, didn't ride the Tour de France, wasn't selected, but he is here at the Vuelta, was in a 166-kilometre breakaway on the stage to Picojano, but generally has been looking, sniffing around for breakaways um, and, and for a stage victory, but he hasn't achieved that yet. This morning in Ronda, I spoke to Mark Padun, and he is the subject of today's Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro
0: del Día, the meeting of the day. Well, Mark, how's your welcome so far?
7: Oh, so far is good. I've been in a breakaway once. I, I saw that in uphill finishes, I still not really far from the best guys. So I quite
1: satisfied with where I am. And um, I think it was well, it was a bit of a difficult summer for you. Um, just give me your summary of
7: May, June, July. Oh, it was not not only summer, but also the spring as well, as I got sick on tirana Adriatica. I didn't come back already till Dauphine properly to the races. And even on Dauphine, I was really in my bad maybe in a worse shape. I participated in the races. As uh, four weeks of altitude I made, it went really bad for me. I over-trained myself. So, uh, should to take some break again uh, after after the dolphin, and then from July start like from, from zero. So, yeah, it
1: was quite a difficult year so far. Uh, everyone says about you, Mark, that you you go up and down a little bit, <laughs> more than maybe more than other guys. And um, what's your explanation for that?
7: Yeah, uh, I do, I doing that and I'm still working on that because uh, I'm the guy who doing too much. And and now I just, we just went on control of everything, of my food, because I I actually eat everything in scales, because I'm the one guy who, if I don't want to eat, I will not eat a little bit, I will not eat at all. Or if I'm hungry, I'm going to, like, overeat instead of uh, doing what I should do. The same is with the training and uh, with attitude so and every year it's still repeating. it was the same also this year and this arrived the moment when uh, when I said actually to myself like enough it's enough I should uh, follow the baseline and uh, in any in any post and and now as you see it's going
1: well through the world and through through Poland and you're working with a nutritionist on the team aren't you
7: yeah
1: has that helped I know you were at Bahrain as well but I think you're working with a new nutritionist on this team is it helping
7: yeah, it still helped me a lot of it, we're doing like we're tracking everything every day, it's still really really difficult work to do but uh, I saw the results and it's still really motivating me like yeah it's not any enjoyable anymore like to sit on the table and have a food it's like it's like a work for me but as long as I'm enjoying my bike I, I gonna continue to do it. And. When so when you're stressed, for example, when you've got other things going on, and then it, does that make it harder to control your diet? Yeah, it's make harder, but. Uh as, uh, like once, twice, three times when you surplus this, it's, it's make it easier and mentally it's easier to surpass the desire to have some food. Obviously I'm a human, I, it's not like for the last two months I've been following like 100% diet. I have two or three days when I went out a little bit but two three days in the terms of two months it's basically nothing so I'm not judging myself anymore and the difference compared to the last years is that after that day I'm not uh, punishing myself I just come... Uh, Coming straight way back to my normal routine and the weight and feelings are coming back to to normal.
1: And another thing people say about you, Mark, is that, or oh, in the last few months, is you've got a lot going on in your life. I think they're referring also to what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, how much is that affecting you? Or has it affected you this year? And what what about it is affecting you?
7: Yeah, I gotta say that this is, didn't affect me at all, and also I cannot say that this affect me like. A, a lot. It's, it's always well there, luckily my parents are not living anymore in Ukraine and it's really helped because when the war has started in 2014, uh, they, they were there, they were in Donetsk where I'm born uh, and raised and uh, to be honest, like imagine myself to be in this kind of situation for the second time, it will be a hell and the same and the same is going for my for my parents. So, thankfully to God, that they are not in Ukraine. They were not in Ukraine on the on the start of the like global war, really, with the, with the Russia-Ukraine. Not only on my local area. And yeah, it's making uh, the situation much easier. But anyway, like knowing that uh, it's going war, like real proper war, already for the half of year in your in your country, where, where where I do have uh, relatives, where I have friends. Uh, it's not. Uh, the thing that's just somewhere there just still, still 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 here and every day so just reading the news and uh, worry worrying a little bit
1: when i spoke to jaroslav popovic at the jira he said that well the, the Western world or Western Europe they were interested for three or four weeks and it was on the news in every country and everyone was very sympathetic and then people kind of moved on and got bored and Ukraine kind of got forgotten about a little bit. Do you have that
7: impression as well? Yeah, it's uh, it's nothing new actually. It's happened completely the same in 2014 and it's happening now like the, the same story like because everybody expected that they are going to do this kind of restrictions poli- political restrictions whatever and in two, three weeks, it's going to be finished. but already more than half a year has passed and uh, something should be done more. I, I don't know what should be done. I'm not politician, I'm not uh, military, but obviously we can see that people are boring what they're doing. Everybody's still suffering because of the pro- higher high prices here in Europe. and uh, yeah. Marco, I'll let you go, but
1: just tell me, um, what's your dream for the rest of the Vuelta?
7: I'm looking forward to, to be uh, in a breakaway again, in a breakaway again, and uh, I, I really want to be in a stage here, as I believe it's possible.
1: Okay, Larry, well, a lot to get our teeth into there, particularly, I think, with regard to uh, an issue that's, well, a, a sort of universal... Um, head scratcher for professional cyclists: the issue of weight and diet. I mean, there were some quite striking comments there from Mark Padun and um, talking about it not being enjoyable to sit at a table and eat food anymore because he's, you know, he's he's really trying to control his eating um, this year, working with this new nutritionist at EF Education First, and um, surpassing the desire to have food, and and he's learning not to judge himself, not punishing himself how much of that rings true for you and would ring true for other pro cyclists
2: oh it definitely uh yeah definitely rings true for me and i think probably every one of us you know it's something i i say uh kind of often when people ask is that you know you know i don't know i think some cyclists have uh eating disorders but i think every one of us has uh disordered eating you know it's like
1: yeah, I was about to say, I mean, that's a, I'm glad you made that point, Larry, because as soon as you say eating disorder, it, it, it gets sort of class cataloged as a, as a, as a pathology, exactly. as an illness. But, but really, all you're saying is that the eating is disordered, i.e. it doesn't really follow the patterns that most people would consider to be conventional.
2: Absolutely. You know, I mean, I think if you probably looked at the definition of eating disorder, we probably all have eating disorders, but... Um, but yeah, you know, I would say like disordered eating is maybe a little more like uh, accurate. It's just that, you know, I don't think uh, any of us go a day without um, thinking about food. You know, or you know, a day. You know, we don't even go an hour without thinking about food. You know, I wake up and you know, I go to bed planning my breakfast. I uh, I, I I plan what I'm going to eat on the bike, and as I'm riding, I plan what I'm going to eat for lunch. You know, I'm thinking about you know what snacks i'm going to have and what i'm going to do for dinner. So, um, you know, i just think also for me one of the things i've said, you know, i think the hardest thing for me is just uh the diet and the weight, you know, because i love food and you know, i really enjoy eating and it's also just something that i was raised with my whole family super into food. Uh, you know, they're kind of foodies and my mom's an amazing cook. So, uh so yeah, it's like it's a really tough thing because, um, you know, I think there are some riders who are totally cool with just being like, you know, food is fuel. For me, food is fuel, but, like, it's also, you know, pleasure, one of my greatest pleasures in life, right? So, uh, and I know there's a lot of riders who are like me. There's a lot of riders who are really into food. And, um, you know, it's hard. And, and it's interesting. I noticed actually a big difference between um, some of the, you know, European riders, like the French... And uh, the Anglos, like for some reason, I feel like Anglo riders are all of this sort of sort where like it's really hard for us to like push, but we can push really hard. And, you know, maybe we push too hard sometimes, but then we kind of go the other way with restriction, with restriction, with restriction. Because then yeah. you, when you restrict, 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 then you have to like go the other way. Right. And then, you know, you binge. And and so it's funny because I feel like it's something that with a lot of the Anglo guys, you know, I can kind of relate to in the off season, you know, we put on probably a few too many kilos, whereas like, you know, I know a lot of my French teammates like they could never put that much weight on because they would think it was never possible to lose it again. Um, so. You know, this thing about yo-yoing everything, uh, it's, it's hard and, you know, I think it's an affliction that 90% of riders probably suffer. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, I've definitely also, you know, I've heard, I, I, I mean, I think Mark Padoon, it's probably even more challenging um, for him than for some others. Um, you know, I heard he did this thing called like the pro, what was that, the carnivore diet? Or, you know, he did like this only protein diet last year and that was how he lost all this weight. Um, and then, you know, he was flying in the Dauphiné, but, you know, I think the thing is when you do these crazy restrictive crash diets, like maybe they do work for a period of time, but they're not sustainable. And, uh, you know, so I think that's probably why, like, you know, if you lose weight so fast, you probably won't lose the power that you had immediately. Um, or at least you won't lose the power as fast as you lost the weight. Uh, but eventually, it'll come back to bite you, and so I think that's probably what happened last year in the dolphin. He lost all this weight, and it was just this perfect moment where, you know, he was flying because he he lost the weight. He still had the power, but then, you know, it kind of maybe came back to bite him in the ass a bit later. So, um, you know, I think the best riders we see, they're able to find that equilibrium with diet, and uh, you know, I think that can also be aided by nutritionists, and that's probably what you know Mark Padoon is sort of chasing now but it's really not an easy thing to balance or manage um, so yeah but that's that's definitely ideal if you can be sort of balanced and slow in your you know um, weight loss and uh, yeah I guess balanced with your diet um, that's the best but it's not easy to do that's for sure
1: I mean two things that really really resonate with me one thing that he said about well repeating the same mistake year after year after year and and, you know this perhaps is difficult for people to understand but it rings true for me or it resonates for me because you know in the last few years I've been writing a book about Jan Ulrich who famously had this problem he could never find a solution to this problem and it, it, people were just exasperated because it was so obvious what he needed to change the mistake that he needed to correct yet he couldn't do it and then what you said there Larry about you know just finding a sweet spot and finding a perfect storm uh, or also just purging yourself um, over a short period of time as Ulrich did every year, you know, you can get yourself into good condition, but it's probably not sustainable. I mean, how have, how do you personally find your sweet spot? Do you weigh your food? Um, and have you had periods when you've got into difficulties? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've definitely struggled uh, to get to my race weight
2: a lot. And, you know, some years I've just never even gotten to uh, what I think is probably my ideal race weight. Um, and I would say... For a period of time, yeah, I tracked all the food I ate. You know, I measured everything, I weighed everything, I counted every calorie, you know, in and out. How, how
1: much huh? How much fun was that? Yeah. How much fun was that? I
2: mean, to be honest, at first it sucks, but then you get in this kind of habit and routine where it's not that bad. Because the one thing that it allows me to do at least, and I think with a lot of people, is it allows you to realize like actually I can like budget in an ice cream, you know? So like you know, I would get really lean, but I would eat a giant bowl of ice cream every single day because I would count, you know, like, okay, like I'm gonna have a little less pasta, but then a ton of ice cream. And, uh, and yeah, so in the end, it's interesting, because when you do this, you realize that like a lot of us, we probably aren't eating enough on the really big days where we're training really hard or riding really long. And then we're eating too much on like some of the shorter days. And so it's at least interesting to learn these things. Um, But this year, I got away from that. And I just, tried to fuel really well on the bike you know eat a ton on the bike that's something that you know has been a big movement in cycling now we're all eating you know a lot like you know we can eat anywhere from 300 to 500 calories an hour in a race or hard training um which is just so different than it used to be and then um yeah I, I try to be really conscious about consuming a lot of carbs in and around my training and then yes yeah, smart on the days where I'm going easier so Um, it seemed to work pretty well for me and I've gotten to really good, like lean body composition while also like maintaining, uh, my hormones and stuff because, you know, we have to do quarterly blood tests for the UCI, everything. So you see kind of like how it affects your hormones and your blood values. And a lot of times when I've tried to do this, you know, measuring, counting, everything. It's like everything just drops off, you know. Like, you know, so iron, so uh, iron, y- your blood, I your hemoglobin supplement. And- it, it to be honest, more it's like testosterone and stuff. So, you know, I've talked with a lot of riders, and I think like all of us have had nearly zero testosterone at a point because like we just got too skinny or lost weight way too rapidly and things like that. And like, you know, that's probably one of the first things to go. Um, And so I don't think that's good for your health. And it's not good for your performance. So it's just, you know, it's it's tough. And uh, if you do it the right way, then like what I've found also is like, if I've lost weight slowly or done it more controlled, then um, yeah, actually, those those things don't drop, you know, like you can still have like, normal testosterone and be as lean, you know, high performing cyclist. So Um, it's kind of interesting, but yeah, I think it's something that a lot of people don't really realize that like, you know, these crazy crash diets, uh, where you push so hard can really wreak havoc on your body.
1: Yeah. And it's also a difficult topic as well because there is a duty of care on the part of the teams. and they need to be empathetic and they need to be sympathetic, but there is also no getting around the fact that power to weight ratio is a thing and uh, a more advantageous power to weight ratio will improve your performances. I would say empathy on the
2: part of the teams uh, in terms of weight is not uh, so common. (laughs) Um, Yeah, to put it, uh, you know, lightly, Um, you know, especially like, for example, in French teams, I think weight is probably one of the most important things. And, you know, that's something I learned when I came here. And uh, I think it's just kind of in the culture of French cycling is that, like, you need to be skinny, skinny, skinny,
1: and then you need to be strong. Um, So... You know, I, I, ironic, ironic in a country when you can't go for a meal without them serving a kilo of cheese or butter in yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. On every on every dish, exactly. Yeah. But but yeah, um, some
2: oh, they can avoid it. But
0: yeah. <laughs> science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta Espana. Science in sport, fueled by science.
6: Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. I'm just about to place an order on scienceinsport.com using the discount code SISCP25 to get 25% off. I have noticed with great excitement that the Tiramisu Go Energy Bakes are back in stock. They weren't there last week when I checked, but they are back in stock now. So I'm going to press checkout on my basket uh, before anyone else gets in there uh, to make sure that I've got some of the Tiramisu Energy Bakes for our Tour de Coste, the second half of which we will be riding towards the end of this month.
0: La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Larry, uh, la cena de ayer, I
1: mean, I'm I'm getting bored of discussing all all of these meat dishes that I have had. Um, But actually, there is one I'm quite looking forward to this evening because we're staying in Córdoba. And last year I was introduced to something called flamenquín, which is a kind of baton a sort of cordon bleu, uh, I think it's pork in breadcrumbs, but with jamon serrano wrapped around the pork under the breadcrumbs. It might even have cheese in the middle, but it's a curious, a curious... Fitting um, after we talk
2: about weight, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, curious gastronomic phenomenon and maybe, maybe in just a second we'll have a guest who can, well, enlighten us a little bit more on Flamenquín. But Larry, let's get to tomorrow's stage and what can you tell us what's coming?
2: Okay, so tomorrow is stage 14 from Montoro to Sierra de la Pandera. Uh, It's 160.3 kilometers with uh, 3,341 meters of climbing. It's a mountaintop finish at 1815 meters and yeah it's a pretty easy flat-ish first half of the stage and a hard last 60 kilometers with a couple climbs before the final um finals pretty long and i don't know i guess for me my prediction is we will see a breakaway take the win but I don't think it's going to be the usual suspects, um, climbers in the breakaway. Like, I don't know if we'll see a guy like Jay Vine there tomorrow, unless it's a really big breakaway. Um, just because, yeah, when it's totally flat like that at the start, it's a lot harder to get in, um, for like the pure climbers and stuff. So, um, I think it'll be an interesting mixed group and we'll see sort of, a you know, an all-around sort of rider um, taking the win at the end of the day. Uh, Because, yeah, it's a 21K climb at the end. Should be hard in the finish.
1: Well, Larry, tremendous job. However, I am going to, well, we're going to turn to a couple of Andalusians to help us um, find out a little bit more about this climb la pandera Sounds um, good. it was discovered it was discovered in well it debuted in the world in 2002 it was apparently discovered because a local lady sent a letter to um the previous not the current race director victor cordero um and it was kind of dubbed as the angleroo of the south hasn't really lived up to that billing the world has been there a few times heras won there valverde kashechkin Cunego and Micah the last time but talk about those two Andalusians the first one we'll hear from is our old mate Luis Ángel Maté of course we know he is planting trees for every kilometer he's in the breakaway here at the Vueda. not going too well at the moment um 24 kilometers i think he's done so far however i spoke to him at the finish today and well i also asked him about la pandera so he is luis well, another day on home roads unfortunately still no break for you um how tough is it
3: out there to, to get yeah. into the right move Jeffrey. not break not trees <laughs> No, uh, the last uh, three, four days, I feel chic, and yeah, I prefer don't take the don't 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 try to, to take the breakaway when when I when when I don't feel good. Today I feel good, the first day after one week, and still two hard, hard days in Andalusia. and tomorrow we try. Just tell us quickly about La Pandera. Yeah. Tapandera is a really hard climb because also you start to climb before the climb. the 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 road is nasty with a lot of, a lot of uh, steep uh, repechos when say in, in Spanish. Rams, the, yeah, steep ramps, steep yeah. ramps, yeah. And the fa- and the fa- and the last part, uh, the barrier to the top is a really 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 hard climb. I think is also for the for the weather, the temperature so high, and will be really hard. Thanks, Luis. Let's get some trees tomorrow. thank you.
1: Well, good to hear Luis Ángel Matei. I couldn't work out there whether he said he'd been feeling chic, sick, or something else. Could have been something else. (laughs) Could (laughs) have been something else. Um, I said Luis... Well, obviously, he's from... Andalusia. He's the links of Marbella. Now we're going to turn to a familiar voice on the podcast. Um, in fact, I'm going to sort of introduce ad hoc. This is not an official feature yet. We haven't got a jingle for it. But I'm going to introduce a new feature. It's gazing wistfully with Fran Reyes because Fran Reyes and um, we had him back a couple of days ago and he gazed wistfully out over the Mediterranean. He offered us a fantastic description of where we were. Fran's back with us tonight. He's from Almeria, which is in Andalusia. Fran. Gaze wistfully for us. Tell us where we are. <laughs> Survey, paint a picture for us.
8: Hello, Daniel. Hello, Larry. Nice to meet you. And hello, listeners. Great to be talking to you again. Have you noticed that we are going from one village in festival to the next?
1: Yes, and, and uh, fiestas in Andalusia are a big thing, aren't they? Yeah.
8: So pretty much every village in Andalusia... Um, well, in the whole Spain, but especially in Andalusia, every village has its week during the summer on which they have the feria, which is the summer festival. So to describe you, well, both Ronda and Montilla are in feria this week. Mm. To describe you guys how a feria feels like for a small Andalusian child like myself. I'm going to ask you for something. Picture yourselves, eight years old... Oh,
1: this is it. We like this. Come on, Fran. (laughs) This is is exactly what I wanted. Come on.
8: (laughs) Picture yourselves, eight years old, surrounded by 1,000, 2,000 people that you know from finding them in the streets. It's night, yet there is light on every corner because they have installed light, so it feels like day. And all around yourself, there is this environment... Of party, there is this environment with music, filled with the different odors of all these food trucks. That you oh, know. Don't, don't yeah.
1: mention food. We've just we've just been discussing how Larry has to restrict his diet as a professional <laughs> cyclist. You might send him over the edge.
8: I yeah, do you know. You know. For nowadays, burgers are something quite common. That back in the day, the first time I saw a burger. It was during the feria, because there was some foot track coming with burgers. Fran, you're about 22. Yeah. How can this no, be? No, 22, no. I'm 31. Okay. I'm 31. I'm getting, I'm getting older, man. I'm growing older. And also, at night, during the feria, you can have churros, and you find your grandmother, and you find your cousins, and you run around at 2 a.m. That's beautiful. And if also there is a cycling race coming, do you know how beautiful that is? <sighs> In the Basque Country, every village has a cycling race for whatever category during the fiestas.
1: I can't work out whether this is a feature that should be repeated or whether it's like a bad <laughs> ayahuasca <laughs> trip. Um, <laughs> 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 Fran, thank you very much for that. Well, that was a, a window into the Andalusian world and culture, and well, it could only have come from you, um, <laughs> couldn't it? And um, Fran, tomorrow, who's going to win the stage? Well, it's and uh, he's, well. More importantly, is Remco going to be put on the ropes tomorrow? I'm going to ask you this as well, Larry. Mm, I, I think uh, Remco will be put on the ropes on Sunday, because uh,
8: yesterday Enrique Mas, at the end of the stage, he at the finish of the stage, he said that Peñas Blancas was about wearing people out as much as possible, and tomorrow Sierra La Pandera, we can we can deem it as a similar cl- kind of climb, and it will be also about wearing people down they will try to put domestics on the on the breakaway in order to pull at certain kilometers but the real goal is to try and really put remco in difficulty on the stage of sierra nevada where there is more altitude to be climbed
1: your thoughts larry uh, yeah,
2: I, I, I kind of agree. I, I don't think like tomorrow is hard enough to put Remco on the ropes. I think it's way like to his style of climb and it's going to be fast. And I mean, there's only like, yeah, there's one kilometer that's super hard, but I don't see him faltering yet. Um, I don't even know if I see him faltering this week, potentially just the last week, but yeah, the day after tomorrow is like a super hard climb. So, uh, yeah, we'll You've see You've been that. up there,
1: Larry, on tra- Have you been up there on training camps? I think you yeah, have, you? this
2: year we were there. I've been there quite a few times. And, and they go from, I'm pretty sure they do Hazayanas at the bottom, which is like really steep, super hard. And yeah. that's just like the first 30 minutes of the climb. Uh, so the first 30 minutes of the climb are totally brutal and you have like an hour of climbing after. So, terrible. Um, yeah, yeah, terrible.
1: <laughs> well chaps that is something that we will definitely look forward to that just about concludes this evening's entertainment and um, I should also mention that Ian Boswell should have been among our guests um, this week but we must offer our condolences to Ian because um, his friend the Kenyan cyclist Sula Kangangi was killed in a crash at the uh, Vermont overland gravel race last weekend so um, ian has not been able to join us understandably this week but he may be back next week and fran i'm going to thank you for your inimitable contribution to the podcast again and larry i do believe that you you will be joining me tomorrow yes Um, not from la pandera i'll be on la pandera the anglery of the south but um we'll be Speaking to the listeners again around about this time tomorrow. So thanks, Larry, and um, hasta luego. Ciao. The Cycling
4: Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.
9: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom
5: Tax day is coming. Oh, no.